You are about to listen to Diamonds with a Flaw, part two of The Lost Art of Teshuvah. All of the schmoozing as well as many series that deal with real-life issues are available on theschmooze.com or on the Schmooze app available for iPhone or Android. That's www.theshmuz.com or by phone at Kol HaLashon 718-906-6461. One of the most famous events that we're all very intimately familiar with is when Hashem says to Avram, leave your home. And we're all aware of the fact that when Avram Avinu appears in Eretz Yisrael, a very strange thing happens. The Sorno explains to us that Avram waited for this opportunity. While he didn't know where Hashem was sending him to, and Avram was much aware that the land that one of the great tests of Avram Avinu's emuna would he question Hashem or not? Keep in mind the fact that when he traveled from Haran to Eretz Yisrael to Canaan, it was a very difficult journey, very bitter. There were no highways, there were no ways of travel as we have now. You got on your camel, you basically went out, and you didn't know who you were going to meet, when, where. And he certainly didn't know what it was going to be like when he got there. And in fact, he listens to Hashem, dutifully leaves his home at the risk of life and everything else. He gets there, and as he gets there, he has to leave Eretz Yisrael. He has to now go to Mitzrayim. Needless to say, there was much for him to question, much for him to ask about Hashem, and the Rishonim explained to us that this was one of the great Nishonos, would he question Hashem, and he passed flawlessly. Never once did he have even the slightest question, Hashem sent me here, Hashem wants me to leave, and he went down to Mitzrayim. When he gets to Mitzrayim, he notices that his wife is beautiful, and he says to her, I've not noticed this before, and he says to her as follows, if I'm going to go down to Mitzrayim, and you will appear as my wife, they're going to kill me. Please say that you're my sister. In fact, Sarai agrees to the charade. That's what they say to Paro. And within a short amount of time, Avram Avinu's wife is taken to Paro to be the queen. After Nais, she's released. It's clear that a certain miracle has happened. And eventually, Avram Avinu makes it back to Canaan. Now, this is a very interesting event as the Chumash relates it. And a very interesting way of seeing a person's tremendous betochen, never wavering, never questioning Hashem. And if in fact that's where it ended, I suspect we'd have an interesting lesson of betochen, of trusting in Hashem. The only problem is that the Ramban comments on this entire event by saying, Chet Godol Chata Avram Avinu Bishkaga. The Ramban says that Avram Avinu sinned a large sin, a tremendous chet. Chet Godol, he did a tremendous sin. Because number one, he risked his wife being taken to Paro. With his lie, by asking Sarah to say the words, say that you're my sister, what he was doing was opening a Pandora's box, which actually in fact happened. She was taken to Paro, and theoretically as an Asia, she could have ended up having to live with Paro. Number two, says Ramban, why did he leave Eretzor? Hashem is quite capable of feeding him. Hashem is quite capable of doing anything, including finding you food in Canaan. Says in Ramban, it was a tremendous sin that Avram Avinu, in fact, engaged in. Apparently, Ramban feels that for you and I, it would have been appropriate, obviously, to leave a land of famine. Avram Avinu was on the level of Betochan. He should have trusted Hashem. He should have stayed there. And this entire event should not have happened. 
And when you think about it, that seems to be a rather obvious and overt stira. On the one hand, this is one of the shining lights in Avram Avinu's entire existence. This is one of the great events that he's accomplished, and yet the Rabban is telling us that it was wrong, he sinned. Granted, it was Bishogig, but again, the Rabban says, and the question is, how do you resolve this? And by the way, keep in mind something very important to understand about an Nisayan in general. If I'm teaching a high school class, I give a test. I give a test because I don't know what the Talmidim know or don't know. So I, the teacher, test the students. The Ramban and Chumash explains that any Nisayan that you see in the Torah is not Kaviyach Hashem needing to test to find out who this person is. The Ramban explains that any Nisayan that you see is actually a tremendous hurdle. The person may have spent years and years and years, as in decades, growing. He's brought himself to a certain level, but it is still remains in the potential. It's still Bekoach, it's not Bepoel. It hasn't been brought out into the fore. Much like a man can train for the Olympics, you could train for 10 years, but if you break your leg the week before the Olympics, you're not going to win the gold. In a sign, is something that takes years and years of growth, it takes years of years of getting to a certain madrega. When you're really right there, Hashem puts that ultimate hurdle to allow you to bring from the potential to the actual. This was not just a shining moment in Avram Avinu's life. This shaped him into who he is for eternity. Tosas Yomtev explains that to this day, this is one of the things that whenever the Klaeso gets into trouble, we say to Hashem, please remember the schos avos, referring to the ten akedas, the ten tests that Avram Avinu went through. And this clearly is a great moment. The stira is, how could it be a great moment? How could it be a great accomplishment? When again the Ramban says, he was clearly wrong and it was a chet gadol. And I'd like to address this question this evening because I think it'll help us get a better understanding of how the Torah views different things. Let me begin with one important observation. The Gemara tells us that there were four people who never sinned. Four human beings who came into this world, left this world without hate. And those four individuals, the Gemara tells us as follows. They were Binyamin, Ben Yaakov, Amram, the father of Moshe, Yishai, the father of David, and the son of David. Now if you noticed, I didn't mention the name of the son of David. And I'll tell you why I didn't. I didn't mention the name of the son of David because I had to look it up in Novi because I forgot how it was pronounced. And here's a very significant observation. The Gemara tells us that these four people came into the world and left the world without sin. You would assume that these are the stellar giants of humanity. These are the greatest individuals who ever walked the planet. But yet the reality is they're not. In fact, Kilav ben David is little known. Granted, Binyamin was one of the Shvatim. Granted, Yishai was the father of David. But you hear he was the father of David. He wasn't David. Amram was the father of Moshe, but he wasn't Moshe. The great human beings were the Avos, Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Moshe, Aaron, David, Shlomo. Those were the ultimate greats. These four don't even make it anywhere near that rank. Yet the Gemara tells us uh, these were the four people who never sinned. And I'd like to share with you a very interesting conversation that I had a little while back with a from psychiatrist. He called me up for help. He said he had a patient, a young yeshiva bokhar, who was having a very real problem. He was involved with a certain sin which is somewhat common amongst bokhrim, and that wasn't the issue. The issue was the guilt was ripping him to shreds. 
He was so torn by the guilt that he literally couldn't function. So this from psychiatrist didn't know how to handle it. So he asked me, could I speak to this fellow and give him the right hashkafa? Could I give him the right approach? Now, you may say to yourself, what do you say? On the one hand, you cannot say the Avera is mutter. It certainly isn't. It's a very, very serious Avera. It can maybe mabal olam. It's very, very real. On the other hand, you can't tell that to a fellow who's wrecked by guilt to the extent that he's destroying himself because that's exactly the fuel that will further burn him at his own stake. So what do you do? And I realized that that's exactly what this Gemara over here is sharing with us. You see, there were four people who came into the world and left the world without a sin. But they were not the greatest human beings who ever lived. In fact, if you trace the seven greatest human beings who ever lived, every one of them had very real shortcomings and had failed various nishonos. And Rabbi Dvirutz Roshiva Rochester once made a very interesting observation, and that is, a great human being is a human being who accomplishes worlds, who does things, who really changes himself, changes the world. He will naturally, in the course of doing things, will slip up. That's part of the game. But the truly great individuals are those who steig, those who grow, those who accomplish worlds. It's not about avoiding sin it's about doing mitzvahs, it's about learning, it's about accomplishing, it's about changing myself and changing the world. Not avoiding sin, but shaping myself. These four human beings were great in the sense that they avoided sin, but they were not great in the sense that they never accomplished anywhere near what the others did. And if you'd like a mushal to what it's like, I have a mushal that I think well encapsulates this concept. If you have a near-perfect diamond, you have a very beautiful 10-carat diamond, and next to it is a flawless, perfect diamond, you know that the difference between them is a king's ransom. The near-perfect diamond will be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, and the perfect diamond will be basically valueless. It'll be trash, because a perfect diamond is fake. The only perfect diamonds are made in the laboratory because any real diamond has a flaw. As a matter of fact, a jeweler will always look for the flaws because if it's flawless, completely internally and externally flawless, it is a fake, it's not real. And I think that concept has some very real bearings. You see, there are things in this world that are perfect. And Malcha Shoris is absolutely, totally the quintessential perfect being. A Malach has no real taiva as we have, has no desire, hence a Malach is perfect. However, a human being can be far greater than a malach, despite, and not just despite his flaws, gufa because of his flaws. And because Hashem made a human being with a very different nature, with real limitations, with real flaws, a human has the capacity to be infinitely greater than a malach. However, almost invariably he will have flaws, he will have shortcomings, and he will have chatayim. And I'd like to share with you what I told this psychiatrist. And that is that this young man has a small Nasayan and a real big deal Nasayan. His small Nasayan is the one that's preoccupying him. And if I were giving him advice, I would tell him, don't even deal with it. It's not for now. Maybe when you get married, when you're older, I don't know, but it's not for now. The real Nasayan that you're dealing with is your Simcha Sachayim. Because who you will be for eternity is shaped on one thing. If you let the guilt kill you, if you let it rack you to the extent that you can't function, you will dissolve and you will be nobody for the rest of your life. 
If you learn to cope with it, if you learn to deal with it, you'll grow your shtayim. You may leave yeshiva in the rank of a Talmud Chacham. You'll deal with this issue later on in life. You'll clean it up at some point. But to be a powerful, brilliant diamond with a flaw is a valuable item. To be a piece of dirt is a piece of dirt. And I think this concept really goes very, very far. And the understanding that a human being will have flaws, that flaws doesn't make it that I'm valueless, and may not even make the act that I'm involved with valueless, I think is a tremendous yesod, and I dare say, I believe it's shot in Avram Avinu. If you'd like to understand Avram Avinu, I believe it's really quite simple. The Ramban hit it on the head. Chet Godol Chata, he sinned a major sin, Beshoge, it was a major sin. Had he had more bitachon, he would have stayed in Eretz Yisrael, the entire event would not have happened. But that was the little Nesoyen. He blew it. Avram Avinu, as great as it was, failed in a little Nesoyen. But now came the major test. Now that you made that mistake, now that you tripped, and now that the whole world has changed, and now that you have to do this strange thing called leave Canaan and go to Mitzrayim, and then your wife is in jeopardy, and this whole situation, do you trust in Hashem, or do you begin questioning? Do you start with all that package of questions on what Hashem meant and what Hashem is doing, or do you trust in Hashem? That's the big deal test. And apparently, Avram Avinu failed the little Nisayan, but became a stellar giant because he won the big fight. And interestingly enough, this is one of the ten crown jewels that adorn Avram Avinu. This is one of the ten Nishonos. But this Nisayan has a flaw in it. And for eternity, there's this huge accomplishment. This man is one of the heights of humanity. He did this thing called living for months without questioning Hashem in the most peculiar situation. It's a shining, brilliant diamond in his crown. But there is a flaw in it. It shouldn't have happened. And he had more bitachon, it wouldn't happen. But you see, the flaw does not make the diamond valueless. It makes it a real human being. It makes it a real act. And for eternity, Avram Avinu is one of the greatest human beings who ever lived. And I think this concept really goes very far because typically we do one or the other. If we see a flaw, what happens is the flaw is huge. It's so big. It's so vast. It's so serious that the act becomes valueless. All I see is the flaw, and I don't see the diamond, or the opposite. I focus on the diamond, and I don't see the flaw. What a human being is called upon to do is to understand that I do many, many things. There are things that I do that are right, things that I do that are wrong, and to have the guts, the honesty to look myself in the eye and say, what I did was a very great accomplishment. However, there was a flaw in it. That doesn't make me puzzle, may not even make the act puzzle, but it's something that I have to deal with, I think is a tremendous yesod, and I think it's a very big deal in terms of dealing with yourself. There are certain individuals who were pivotal in the course of history. Ravashi was the one who wrote down the Gemara. Rabbi Meir was the one who edited and put together the Mishnayas. The Beis Yosef was the one who became the final word in Halacha. And it's very hard to imagine how key and critical he is to the Mesorah. Interestingly enough, the Beis Yosef was visited by a Malach for many years. Many, many years on a regular basis, this Malach would come and learn, teach the Beis Yosef. 
Interestingly enough, you see no mention of it in Shulchan Aruch. Shulchan Aruch is a work of man. The Torah was given to Adam to learn, and Malachim's Torah does not belong there. The entire Shulchan Aruch, the Beis Yosef, the Kesav Mishnah, the Malach's words are not mentioned. However, the Beis Yosef did write a sefer called Magid Misharim, in which he writes down the various conversations, the various teachings that the Magid, the Malach, taught him. In any case, one of those pieces discusses the following issue. There is a very difficult Gemara. Gemara Ervin tells us that for two and a half years, Hillel and Beishamai had a machlokas. That machlokas was, is it better for man to have been born, or better for man not to have been born? Should man have been born or not? For two and a half years, they argued. Finally, they came to the conclusion, it is better for man not to have been born. Now, you may wonder about that Gemara and scratch your head and say, it's a bit peculiar. <coughs> Number one, what was the Machlokas about to begin with? <coughs> Number two, everyone agrees, Beishamah and Beishelah finally agree on something. What do they agree on? That it's better not to have been born. It sounds a bit peculiar. And the Magid explained this Gemara to the Beis Yosef and explained as follows. The very first question you have to deal with is the most basic question that any human being has to deal with. And that is, why did Hashem create us? And this apparently the Beis Yosef got 100% right because the Magid said what you've been teaching is absolutely accurate. And that is, there are two reasons why Hashem put the human into this world. The Magad explained that basically one of the problems of being a recipient of good is it's Nahama Sufa, it's bread of embarrassment. If you're the recipient, if someone gives you, gives you, gives you, you become embarrassed, you don't feel pride in it, you don't feel it's acquired, and there's a certain embarrassment that comes with it. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu could have created Adam and put him in Gan Eden for eternity, but that would have been Nahama Sufa, it would have been embarrassment, he didn't earn his keep, he didn't earn it, he couldn't fully enjoy it. Therefore, it was appropriate to put man in this world. However, there's a second reason why it's appropriate and proper to put man in this world. That second reason is because everything in this universe is static. It is what it is and will be what it is for eternity. A malach can be in a very high madrega, but it is there permanently. There are ten levels of malachim, each one pegged exactly at that point, static, unmoving for eternity. Adam. And Adam alone in the entire universe has this capacity to go up or go down to actually change. And therefore, Adam has the potential to be greater than the Malachim themselves because given this opportunity to go lower or go higher, the human has potential to reach far more than he was under the Kisya cover. The Beis Yosef was then explained by the Magid as follows. The Neshama, which means you and I, were sitting under the Kisya cover. And we see other neshamas that come back. And they're glorious. They're shining. And they're pristine. And they're powerful. And we have a sense of jealousy. A sense of, wow, look what it means to go into the world and come back. Look what this world can accomplish. And therefore, we wish to go into the world. There's a real tzad. There's a real position that the neshama says, put me in the world. However, not every neshama comes back sterling, shining, and pure. Some neshamas come back a bit damaged. Some neshamas come back half the size they were originally, and some don't make it back at all. And when you and I witness some of the defective, some of the damaged neshamas come back, 
there's a very different sensation that we feel, and that is, I want no part of this world. Count me out. I don't need this world. I don't want this world. I'm under the Kisya Kovat. I'm right by Shem. I do not want to be born. And the Magid said, that's what the Gemara was discussing. There is a Havamina, there is a good sign for Inishama to say, put me in the world, bring me into this world, because I could grow, I could earn my keep. It's a wonderful thing. There's another tzad, and that is not every neshama does so well. It's not so simple. It's pretty dangerous, the thing we call life. Nimnu v'gamru b'shamayim b'shilo voted, they agreed, it is better for a man not to have been created. It's just a tad too dangerous. Obviously, Hashem created the world. Obviously, Hashem puts neshamas into this world. Hashem, with His infinite wisdom, has a more objective standard. For the individual, subjectively, it might be dangerous and it might look risky. Hashem, from his vantage point, says it's worth it. For those who excel, for those who really make it, for those who become what they're destined to be, it's worth it. There will be some casualties, but on on balance, it's worth it. And therefore, Hashem created the world. And therefore, Hashem put us into our current existence. And now, my friends, I want to share with you what I consider a profound chiddush. If I tell you that the neshama has no pleasure from this world, that's obvious. We discussed in previous Shmuzim, 116 growth, the fact that there's a part of me that has no enjoyment whatsoever from any activity on the planet. You ever notice this human being is such a strange phenomenon? He could have wealth, he could have luxuries, he could have opportunity, but the one thing that's so rare is something called happiness. Why isn't the human happy? You've given him everything he needs. Money, luxuries, honor. He's got it all. He lives in a mansion. Everyone knows his name. He's famous. What more can he need? And he's unhappy. He's not satisfied. He always needs more. He needs something else. And he's constantly, constantly running. The reason for this is because there is a part of him. That part of me is in the neshama that wishes for much, much greater than anything this world could ever offer. In fact, Mr. Lashon gives us a mushal. He says the mushal to what is comparable to a princess who marries a peasant. He says, imagine that somehow this princess ends up in the forest over there. She's lost for years and she marries this peasant. This peasant, being a good husband, brings the best of his world. He brings her literally the best carved beads that he possibly can. He puts them together into a necklace and provides it to his bride. He provides the most beautiful sheets that he can, which are made of coarse linen. She grew up on satin and silk with the greatest jewels and the most delicate foods. And you're offering her your peasant things. There's nothing that will satisfy her. Says Mrs. Hashem, that is us. You could give me all of the pleasures, all of the money, all of the honor. It doesn't fill my soul because my neshama screams out, this is cheap. It's tinsel. It's fireworks that glitter and are gone in a moment. It means nothing to me. And the reason why the human being is never content is because everything he strives for, everything he wishes to acquire leaves him as hungry or hungrier than he was before because it doesn't satisfy my inner need. So, if I were to tell you that the neshama is sitting under the kisya kavod and doesn't want to be born, that's obvious. Because it gets no pleasure from this world. But if I were to tell you that it's worth it, it's worth it because you know what you can gain, you could give up that bread of embarrassment, you can earn your keep. And not just can you earn your keep, you can shtai, you can grow, you can become a sterling, shining light, greater than malachim. For eternity, you'll be one of the greatest things in existence. 
the neshama would say, okay, I'll put up with the pain, I'll put up with the uncomfortableness of 70 years, 80 years of existence, <clears throat> it's worth it for eternity. But my friends, what happens if you blow it? What happens if you were a shining light, granted not the highest level, maybe slightly less than Malachim, but you were pure under the Kisya covered, you came into this world and you blew it. You didn't accomplish, you didn't grow, you didn't reach your potential, and you come back damaged. It's not just that you wasted your entire existence here, it's not just that you spent 70, 80, 90 years in an uncomfortable environment, you were better off not born. You were better off not created. And that is a very, very frightening thought. Because your entire life, and that means everything that you do, everything that you're involved in, you would have been better off not having been put here. And when you leave this earth, that's how you look back on it. I should have, would have stayed there. Hashem decided, it's not my destiny. I wish I hadn't been born. And I guess it's a bit of an eye-opener in the perspective that what we call life is, again, dangerous. The stakes are very, very high. If a person accomplishes in this world, they reach heights, stellar, unimaginable heights. But if they blow it, they're better off not being born. They're much better off not having lived. And it's a very, very powerful concept. And I'd like to share with you what I consider the most critical question that a person should ask themselves on Yom Kippur. At some point during Yom Kippur, a person should look at themselves and ask themselves this one key critical question. And that question is, how are you doing? Now, obviously, I don't mean how are you doing, and how are you doing? Hey, how are you doing? How are you doing means, how are you doing? How do you rate as a human being, as an Ever Hashem, as a father, as a person who's growing, as a person who's working on his meters, how are you doing at this thing called life? How do you rate? How do you stack up compared to what you should be doing, compared to what's expected of you, and compared to what you expect of yourself? Where do you find yourself? How are you doing? Now, most people, when they ask themselves this question, get that kind of deer in the headlight look, like as in, huh? How, how am I supposed to know how I'm doing? I don't know. Is it some objective rating card? Is there some like GPA that I'm going to... I don't know how I'm doing. I just, I'm doing. I'm just, I'm busy. I'm doing. I hope I'm doing okay. I, I never really think about it much. You know, I'm just, I'm busy at this thing called living. Uh-huh. Rather peculiar, this human being. Put into the planet for one reason and one reason only. To grow, to accomplish, to change himself. Never during his life does he ever ask himself the question, am I doing what I should be doing? Am I on track? Am I heading in the direction I should be? How do I rate? <clears throat> How am I midos? How's my learning? How am I doing? Rather, rather strange, this human being. A human being, an intelligent, arguably intelligent, thinking person will walk, talk like a brilliant individual and be dumb as sin. Dumb as sin because not dealing with the most basic question of my existence. I was put here for a very specific reason. How am I doing in accordance to that issue? And as ironic as it sounds, as comical as it sounds, we never ask ourselves that question. And I think it's a very, very key question to ask yourself on Yom Kippur. Specifically on Yom Kippur because there's a different clarity of understanding. The clouds are sort of lifted. 
the darkness <clears throat> sort of eliminated and you could understand things with a much greater perception <clears throat> you could understand things with a much greater clarity of thought and I think <clears throat> there's one very very important observation <clears throat> we all I believe have this someday category we all have this sort of category where someday someday I'll learn Shas <clears throat> someday I'll master Mishnayas Someday I'll be a real mensch. And you'll see my grandchildren will look up to me. Oh, Zaidi, oh, Zaidi. One day that's, that's going to be me. Now, I have some shocking words to tell you. That someday will never come. Ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen. The only way that you're going to be what you want to be someday is if you make concrete, real plans to be that person that you someday want to be. If you dream about being a Tamakhachan from now until a hundred years from now, you ain't going to be it. If you put your body into a dafyomi and really put your brain on on and make a plan, seven years, finishing shas, and then conquering it, learning it, and growing and accomplishing, you'll get there. If you learn a perik a day of Mishnayas, within one year, you finish Shisha Siddha Mishnah. You do that 20, 30 times, I guarantee you'll be bucky in Shas. If you learn Chumash a half hour a day, you'll master Chumash and Rashi. I guarantee that there are very few people you know who really know Chumash and Rashi, because Chumash and Rashi is Kola But you see, the difference between making real goals, saying, I have a dream and I'm going to get there, is the difference between success and whatever. Someday, Someday I'll be somebody. And I think one of the key issues that a person should be doing on Yom Kippur is dealing with this very core question. How am I doing and what am I doing about it? If my goal is to be whatever, what's my plan? If you look at yourself on Yom Kippur and you say, I'm satisfied, I'm doing okay, and I'm just where I want to be, that's an interesting issue. And we have a lot to talk about. Because I believe that it is a rare human being who really can say, I'm where I need to be. And more than that, that's not why Shem put us on the planet. Shem put us on the planet to grow level after level, to reach heights that are really unimaginable. And therefore, it requires a tremendous amount of work, a tremendous amount of focus. However, if you don't do it, you're never going to get there. And that's a big part of our Voda on Yom Kippur, to see where I'm at, plan where I need to be, and figure out how to get there. However, there's another part of our Vodan Yom Kippur that's equally important. And I'll share that with you, an interesting mushal. To mark the year 2000, De Beers and Steinmetz Group unveiled the world's rarest and arguably most valuable set of diamonds. In it was the centerpiece, the Millennium Diamond. Now, the Millennium Diamond ranked at about 205 carats. It is a, if you recognize diamonds, it's, it literally takes your breath away. It is flawless, beautiful, magnificent, and it's huge. A two-carat diamond is pretty sizable. This is 200 carats. And the value of it, they really can't insure it in any accurate manner because it doesn't exactly have a market value because you don't buy and sell these kind of things. But it's worth an untold amount of money, a nearly flawless, perfect diamond. 
Now, no one knew when they mined this originally what it would look like. In fact, originally when they brought it out of the mine, it was 777 carats. A mass, however, needed to be cut. And it took three years when the Steinmetz group studied, planned, and eventually cut the diamond. And what they ended up with were three pieces. The best part was the Millennium Star, which became this 200-carat diamond. Now, let's imagine for a minute that they went through the cuts, and the lead cutter cut it open and found a perfect way to get out the center part, and he laser etched it out, went through the cut, and it came out perfect, but it was black on the inside. Beautiful diamond, 54 facets, gorgeous, everything perfect, except the inside is black and dirty. My friends, it would not be a valueless diamond. You wouldn't use it for industrial grade. Maybe you'd use it to cut metal with. It'd be worthless. And that's a very, very key concept to understand. If you'd like to know what tshuva is about, the reality is that every one of us have accomplished many great things in our life. We've done things, whether for others, for ourselves, for our children, we've learned, we've done chesed. There are many things that we have done. And that reality brings a very certain core cognition. When I leave this current existence, I will be exactly what I shaped myself into. A diamond. Maybe two carats, maybe four carats, maybe 20, maybe 45 carats. Wow! But that 45 carat diamond, if it's black and if there are clear black marks that are visible to the eye, is no longer a 45 carat diamond. It's now a marred, dirtied, sullied diamond. You see, flaws in a diamond are barely perceptible. When you look at the diamond, you see a diamond. You need to take a loop out. You take out the loop under 10 times magnification, you see the flaw. But if the flaw is visible to the eye, if it's cloudy, if it's dirty, it takes a priceless gem and makes it worthless. And my friends, if you'd like to know what tshuva is about, that's it exactly. If we were to, Rahman al-Islam, leave this earth right now, I dare say we would have many, many spot marks, many pock marks, much dirt. If you'd like to understand what Yom Kippur is about, it's a cleansing process. The diamond is there, the value of my life is there, but it's dirtied, sullied, and therefore becomes so much less valuable. And if you'd like to understand what tshuva is, it's a process of eliminating the black, getting rid of the dirt. The diamond is there, but it makes it infinitely more valuable, and it is a tremendous schuss to live through a Yom Kippur. If a Jew lives through Yom Kippur, it's a tremendous chus because he could come out a vastly different human being for eternity. It may not make sense. Mr. Lashon, we've discussed many times, says it is be, beyond human logic, but the reality is through this process called tshuva, if I could ever stare myself in the eye and really deal with who I am, I can get rid of the dirt, get rid of the coloring, get rid of that and be for eternity exactly what I shaped myself into. I think there's a tremendous lesson to learn from Avraham Avinu. The greatness of the human is not avoiding sin. The greatness of the human being is accomplishing, doing, learning, doing chesed, working on your midos, being somebody. The four greatest human beings were not the father of Moshe, the father of David, the son of Yaakov, or the son of David. They were Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Moshe, Aram, David, despite the fact that they had flaws. Because greatness in the human is about growing, accomplishing. If you have flaws, if they're minor, it's part of the game. What the Ramban is telling us is that Avram Avinu slipped up. 
on some minor level he slipped up, he was on the type of level of betachem that he should have trusted and remained in Eretz Yisrael. There was a flaw in his diamond. It's a type of flaw that again you and I were not even held accountable for. A very minor flaw, but a flaw nevertheless. Despite the fact that it was a huge diamond, one of the ten crowning events of his life, the Nisayan not questioning Hashem, but it is a perfect, beautiful diamond with a slight flaw. And the difference between a perfect diamond and imperfect is an imperfect diamond is real, a perfect diamond is flawed. I think it's a tremendous concept how to deal with me. That yeshiva bacha had a very real challenge. I promise you he did not ask to be born in this generation. I don't think in the history of mankind has there been such rampant taiva, such out of control, out of bounds behavior, that which passes for normal in society is abnormal. The psychiatrist should be pulled in to analyze how they could allow people to run around the streets as they do, how they could have entertainment parading as they do, and they shouldn't be trying to put the yeshiva bachas back into normal, they should put the leaders of society under very, very long therapy to make them normal. But the reality is he didn't choose this generation, but this is his nisayan. But his nisayan, I say, is not necessarily the taiva issue. That's one small issue. The much bigger issue is what does he do with it? Now that he's here, does he grow, does he accomplish despite his flaw, or does he self-destruct? You see, if he continues growing, if he battles it and wins, he's a giant. He could be a tamachacham, he could finish shas, he could master shas. Who knows where he'll be? And eventually he'll get rid of that damage. Eventually he'll deal with that flaw and get it cleaned up. But if he implodes now for eternity, he's nothing. And understanding that requires a tremendous, tremendous balance. Understanding that sins are real. It is absolutely forbidden and it's not mutter. And yet, I'm going to continue what I'm doing despite the fact that I'm not fully pleased with myself. Most people, when they try to introspect, fall prey to one or the other. Either I'm perfect, I don't have sin. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> it's me, sin. <clears throat> maybe, I, maybe when I was 18, I, I think, somewhere, yeah, yeah, vaguely, but real sin's not me. Or the opposite, if they're ever actually able to see their real flaws, they become so overcome with guilt. <clears throat> look at that flaw, look at that sin, look at that avery, you know, now I'm dirt, I'm worse than dirt, I'm slime, I'm a slime rag, I'm worthless, I shouldn't have, I have no right to exist. Both are patently false. The reality is that a human being is a diamond, a precious diamond, as precious as you've made yourself into, two carats, 20 carats, 100 carats, what you've accomplished in this world is what you are, and you also have flaws. Your focus is to grow bigger and bigger, accomplish more and accomplish more, and get rid of those flaws. Both have to be there. You have to grow, you have to accomplish, you have to be aware that you're going to mess up, you're going to fall down, but you're going to get back up, and there is a process called tshuva, and Hashem gave us that process to change, to make myself into a vastly different person. Ultimately, you are what you shape yourself into. Ultimately, for eternity, you leave this earth in exactly the form you've made yourself into. And I'd like to close with with what I consider almost, sometimes I wonder, it becomes too obvious, when Hashem makes it just a tad too obvious, I can't, I'm torn whether to say it or not say it, because it's almost like it's scripted. 
But I'm going to share this with you <laughs> right out of the book. And again, I'm not making this up. It really happened. You're going to say to me afterwards, come on, it's a, it's a play, right? <clears throat> okay, this past summer, it was as Manim, and I get, a, I get a text. We have extra Met tickets. Do you want to, do you want to t- tickets? Said, okay, listen, it's Sunday afternoon. My kids are off from school. <clears throat> Why not? So I take the whole family, my wife included. We get in the van. We head out to Shea Stadium. Okay. Ends up the fellow leaves the tickets in the holding uh, booth over there. We get there, get the tickets. I'm not a big, I never was a big spectator sport fan. I don't know when the last time I was in a, in a game. In any case, I see the tickets. I go, great, okay, guys, let's go. So we, we start walking to Shea Stadium. Now, as you know, Shea Stadium, the way it walks, it, it's sort of a, a circle that you walk around. So we start walking this circle. We start at field level. And you could sort of like look in. You can see the field, pretty nice. Then you, you walk up a little bit higher as you go around the circle. You get to the lodge level. You know, you're kind of climbing up. You can still see the field pretty clearly. We're going around the circle a little bit more. We get to the mezzanine level. You're getting a little bit more distant. And finally, we get up on the upper level. Now, we walk out. You know, you walk from that inner circle. You walk out, and you see the field. Now, to be honest with you, it's pretty high up. But I said, listen, not so bad, because you could still see the field. It isn't so bad. I look at the tickets, and I see the numbers, and I see we've got a lot of climbing to do, guys. So we start climbing and climbing and climbing. The ultimate nosebleed seats. I mean, we should have taken a helicopter and landed. It was so far up. There was no way. Now, I was a little bit aware that the guy who's going to give me tickets is not going to give me box seats. So we brought binoculars. And so there I am with all my kids. Come on, guys, look, can you see? My little guy goes, where? See what? <laughs> Those little people down there. Oh, yeah, I see them. What are they doing? I don't know. But I don't know. <laughs> Can't really tell from up here. Well, Yoel is four and a half. Needless to say, he didn't last very long. Ah, uh-uh, but can we go? So anyway, I start walking with Yoel. Now, this part is right out of the book. We go around, we start walking back the other way. Where are you going to go in Shea Stadium other than around? So we walk down, and I get to the mezzanine level, and I sort of walk in and look at the field, and it's much closer, and the game is much more intense, and it's a lot more fun to be there. Yoel is pretty bored by that point, so we go a little bit further down, we go around and around, and we get to the mezzanine level. We get to the mezzanine, and we look in, and it's much closer. This is like pretty close to the field. You can actually see the players. You can actually recognize and see their intensity, and it's a lot more exciting. Yoel is almost a little bit interesting. And we get further down, and we get to the field level. There's a gate. There's a gate that stops us. It's field level, and the gate, we can't go in. But you could feel the excitement. You could feel the intensity. You could hear the, hear the ball hit the glove. And there's a difference in the air. This went on long enough. It was finally, it was pretty close to the eighth inning. I said to the fellow, the ticket taker at the gate, listen, I got a little person here. Do you mind if we go in just for a minute? We'll come right back out. I just want to see the field. Is it okay? He says, let me see your tickets. And he looks at my tickets, sees that their nosebleed up there, says, no. And I said, oh my goodness, I get it. I understand why I needed to come to this game. Do you know what it's like to sit behind the dugout? You're in the game. It's vibrant. It's alive. It's exciting. It's real. It's passionate. Wow. Do you know what it's like to sit in nosebleed heaven? It's like, where am I? What am I? If you want to understand Gan Eden, it's really very simple. Yemitz Hashem will all be there. The question is, where are you going to be? Now you're going to be way, way up there, as in grab the binoculars and where are we? Or are you going to be right there on baseline, right there in the game? And the difference is so powerful. The difference is so much of a difference. And the difference is for eternity. 
One of the saddest, saddest things is when a person wakes up at the age of 70 or 80 and says, what did I live for? What was I accomplishing? What was it all about? And it's far sadder when they leave this planet and say, idiot that I was, I would have been better off not being born. And those words the Gemara tells us many, many neshamas say, many, many neshamas would have been better off not being born. However, there are many neshamas who are much better off being born. There are many neshamas who grow, who accomplish, who become so much different, so much greater, that it is far worth even the negative, even those who don't make it, because they reach such heights. And my friends, is one great secret of life. You and I have this capacity to change ourselves for eternity, and it's so easy. All we have to do is put the brain on on, pay attention, ask myself, what am I doing here? Ask myself, what does Hashem want from me? Ultimately, it will make me happier in this world. Hashem created us to be happy, to enjoy this planet, this temporary existence, but there are particular ways to do it. If you follow the Torah, you enjoy your life here, and for eternity, you're a different human being. But you've got to wake up. Yom Kippur is about waking up. It's about getting rid of the flaws, getting rid of those imperfections, but it's about setting goals for eternity. May Hashem grant us the wisdom and understanding. We all have a good giventure. Meet next year in Yerushalayim. Hallelujah. You've been listening to Diamonds with a Flaw, Part 2 of The Lost Art of Teshuva. This, as well as hundreds of other Shmooze audio, video, and articles are available on theshmooze.com or on the Schmooze app, available for iPhone or Android. That's www.theshmuz.com or by phone at Kol Halashem, 718-906-6461.